As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Hello there, it's good to have you back. I'm Justin Bradley, bringing you the podcast that connects you with great Christian thinkers, apologists, theologians, and evangelists, so that you can make the case for faith confidently, unapologetically even. And today we're continuing a conversation on God, science, and atheism with John Lennox, Professor Emeritus of Mathematics and Philosophy of Science, recorded in the observatory tower of his own Green Templeton College at Oxford University. And you can find links to his most recent book, Cosmic Chemistry, with today's show. Uh, The conversation is being used with kind permission from SBCK, the publisher for whom this was originally recorded. By the way, thanks to Kamsi, a new show listener who writes off to a great start, a good meaty discussion in a portion size that I could digest. I love the intersection of theology, philosophy and history. Plenty of food for thought to keep my mind busy in the coming days. Uh, Please, like Kamsi, do leave us a positive rating and review in your podcast provider. Helps others to discover the show in these early months. And if you want more from Premier Unbelievable, check out our website, premierunbelievable.com. You can find our recent conference ready to purchase as a digital download there. And you can get our next live online event on 12th of July. Register for a conversation on millennials and Gen Z. Are they ready to believe in God? John McRae and Michaela Peterson, daughter of famed psychologist Jordan Peterson, joining me for that big conversation live. You can be part of it. Ask your questions. You just need to register. Again, that's premierunbelievable.com. The links are with today's show. Right now, let's leap into the conversation again. Many of the modern inheritors of that scientific view that Huxley embodied, people like Richard Dawkins, Peter Atkins today, they would say it's the progress of science, what we know about the universe, that makes us believe that actually it's pointing towards atheism, towards naturalism, rather than towards God. So, so why do they see this conflict narrative as being alive and well today? when it comes to science and God? I think one of the reasons is they don't study history enough, because if they did, they would know that between 1900 and 2000, over 65% of all Nobel Prize winners did believe in God. It's it's a bit of an exaggeration. And I think it's important. Of course, we don't settle these things by statistics, but it's important to analyze What is going on? Because the underlying message of a lot of this is what we call scientism. Science is the only way to truth, and you better get used to it. And Dawkins and the late Stephen Hawking are both very strongly on that side. Now, that is plainly incorrect. 
I love logic as a mathematician, and the statement, science is the only way to truth, is not a statement of science, it's a statement of philosophical belief. And therefore, if science is the only way to truth, if it's true, it's false. <laughs> so it's logically incoherent. And oddly, one of Dawkins' great scientific heroes, and one of mine, is Peter Medawar, who was here in Oxford, won the Nobel Prize. And one of the points he made is something that needs to be brought into the center of the discussion. That is, science is wonderful, but it has its limits. And Medawar says we're doing science no service at all if we claim that it can answer every question. It cannot even answer what he calls Karl Popper's questions, the questions of a child. Where do I come from? Where am I going? And what is the meaning of life? And he says we've got to turn to literature and so on, and philosophy for answers to these questions. The realization that science, though powerful, and I'm talking, of course, about the mm. natural sciences, is limited, is hugely important, because that would shift one away from the kind of statement of Hawking and Dawkins that science is going to explain everything there is to know about the universe. Einstein put his finger on part of it beautifully when he said, you can talk about the ethical foundations of science, but you cannot talk about the scientific foundations of ethics. And indeed, I think it was Schrodinger, the Nobel Prize-winning quantum scientist, who said, it's amazing how little science tells us about the things that really matter. Mm. And certainly it doesn't give us any answer to what most people, thinking people, are looking for. And that is the question of meaning in their lives. But I detect also an element, not simply of atheism, but actually anti-theism. Mm. among many of these scientists. Think of Nobel Prize winner Stephen Weinberg. We've got to wake up from the nightmare of religion. And anything scientists can do to eliminate religion ought to be done, which is seriously totalitarian. Mm. Now, we've got to face that. Certainly there have been religions that have damaged humanity. And they must speak for themselves. But the only one I can speak for is the Christian one where Christ himself um, told his disciples not to get involved in physical fighting and all this kind of stuff and defended the attitude that is open to reason and thinking and thought. So part of my book is devoted to dealing with this kind of scientism. Now, there's another conviction that underlines this. And it's what we might call ontological reductionism. That is explanation. What is explanation? Explanation means explaining something complex in terms of simpler bits. So it is bottom-up, so to speak. In other words, you're reducing the complex to the simple. So bottom-up, but not top-down. And that conviction underlines this, and Dawkins puts it, very neatly and helps us understand what's going on. He said, look, if you're going to introduce God as an explanation of anything, that is absurd. Why? Because God, by definition, is more complex than the thing you're explaining. And therefore, God is no explanation at all. Now, that sounds terrific until you analyze it in Dawkins' own case. I pick up a book, The God Delusion. What, 400 pages? 
And I ask for an explanation of its origin. And I'm told it originates in the vastly more complex mind of Richard Dawkins. And I say, that cannot be true, because your explanation is more complex (laughs) than the thing that you're explaining. Surely your idea of Richard Dawkins is the Dawkins of the gaps. You simply can't explain it. So you're postulating a Dawkins of the gaps. Now, the serious point of the analogy is this. That, yes, wonderful if we can reduce complex things to more simple parts, water to hydrogen and oxygen, and so on. That kind of reductionism is very useful. We do it all the time. But there's one place where it fails. And that is where language is involved. Meaningful language. And that's why Dawkins' book raises that question. Now, it's very interesting uh, to see where atheists, attitudes go with one of the basic things that are involved in science. I often ask uh, colleagues when I meet them, what do you do science with? And they say with my, and they almost say mind, but if they're very (laughs) up to date, they say brain because they believe the brain is the mind, as you know. I say, okay, let's have the brain. Give me a brief history of the brain. Well, it's, it's very simple. The brain is the end product of a mindless, unguided process. And I usually sit back, pause for a minute, and smile and say, and you trust it? <laughs> now tell me honestly, and here's a fascinating experiment. You tell me honestly whether if you knew that the computer that you use every day was the end product of a mindless, unguided process, would you use it? I've always had the answer, no. So I say, I see you have a problem. You're telling me that you trust your brain or your mind to do science, but yet your elucidation of the instrument, if you like, with which you do science, undermines Mm. any vestige of confidence in the rationality you need to do the science. Now, what's so interesting about that, Justin, is that is an argument that's been around for a long time. C.S. Lewis uses it, Alvin Plantinga, but now, in more recent days, Thomas Nagel, who's a brilliant atheist Mm. philosopher, says there's something basically wrong with this materialistic, naturalistic Mm. view of origins because they undermine the rationality we need to do science. Mm. Now, he wants to come up with a materialistic solution. He hasn't found it, and that doesn't surprise me. So what I'm saying here is, When you unpack this seemingly impregnable edifice of saying science leads to atheism, the very thinking Mm. that is involved in doing science, if you presuppose atheism, undermines all rationality. And it was Lewis who said, any theory that undermines thinking cannot by definition be true because you have to think to get to it. So I see huge flaws here, but the trouble is, the difficulty is, is in articulating these things to the public and point out the emperor actually has no clothes. And that's a difficulty that faces me. I mean, when it comes to this question of what is it appropriate for science to explain and and what actually is beyond the explanation of science? What do we need other tools to investigate the world with? 
you, you make a very good analogy in the book um, with the idea of uh, someone baking a cake. Aunt Matilda. Yes, yeah, Aunt Matilda's cake. Tell us about Aunt Matilda's cake. Yes, well, that illustrates the limits of science. Here we have Aunt Matilda. She's, she's baked a cake. And uh, we have all the Nobel Prize winners assembled. And we ask them to tell us about the cake. So we get very detailed explanations of its biochemistry, of the basic physics behind it, of the metabolic pathways and all this kind of thing. And when they've all finished, I say, well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Now tell us why she made it. And she starts to grin because, of course, she knows why. <laughs> and the point is that their scientific analysis cannot answer the question, but she can. Mm. She can reveal it to us. Now, this is an innocent little analogy, but actually it serves a very much bigger purpose, that when she reveals it and says, I made it for my cousin Jimmy's birthday, we don't shut off our rational assessment of that. If she doesn't have a cousin Jimmy, then we'll not believe her. The point is, science can deal with many things about that cake and deal with them rationally. But, and here's the problem with scientism, science is not coextensive with rationality. And when she reveals it to us, we use our rationality to assess that revelation. Now, on the much bigger scale, going back to the father of science, Francis Bacon, you know, and his idea that God has two books, the book of nature uh, and the Bible, the book of God's word. We use our rationality to cope with both. And I, I like to say to people, look, we have two sources of information. We've got the natural world and we've got the biblical worldview. Mm. But we use our rationality in both. We use evidence-based thinking on both. And that's what I'm pleading for. Mm. But then I run up against this, that one of the drivers of these atheist convictions, is the idea, let me quote uh, Hitchens, atheists have no faith. You see, they think that faith is a religious word, and it means believing where there's no evidence. They're wrong on both counts, and seriously wrong. Mm. And what they do not realize, and I find it almost impossible to get across, even to some of my colleagues here in Oxford, and that is that faith is an ordinary word, which we all use. It comes from Latin, fides. We get fidelity, trust. All those words are related. And whenever we're asked to have faith in something, or a bank manager we ask him to have faith in us and give us a loan. Evidence is the first thing we think about. What is the evidence that you can pay me back? Evidence-based faith, we all know mm. about it. Mm. And yet, if you say, no, no, faith is believing where there's no evidence, and that's the religious bit, what you do is make a gigantic mistake. First of all, you're saying there's no evidence for the truth of Christianity, which I would strongly disagree with. But secondly, you're saying, and this is perhaps just as dangerous, that faith is not involved in science. When, of course, it is. Mm. I've just given you an example of it. Mm. Scientists trust their minds. Mm. They are believers, but they trust more than that. Um, they trust that this universe is accessible to the human mind, that mm. is rationally intelligible. Mm. 
You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. That's one of the extraordinary things, is that even among non-Christians and great physicists like Sir Roger Penrose, you know, recently won a Nobel Prize himself, he, he has pushed against the naturalist assumptions, actually, of Dawkins and others in his field, because he recognizes that it's a extraordinary that the maths that he does and the physics he enjoys maps on to this physical universe. And he hasn't, as far as I can see, yet worked out exactly why that is, why, why there is this incredible congruence, the fact that we can use science and maths to map out the physical world. Now, most people just take that for granted. It's almost, you know, nobody almost thinks about that. But, but increasingly, I think this has been coming up in the scientific community. Why is, is there this ability to do science in the first place? And for you, in the book, John, you say, actually, this is an important clue towards God and away from this naturalist perspective that many of these scientists adopt. Hugely important, I think. And it's been noticed for a long, long time. Because if you go back to Galileo and Newton and so on, what was their motive for doing science? They believed it could be done. Mm. They believed there was order there. Why? Because they believed, as Lewis says in that quote I made earlier, they believed in a lawgiver, a legislator. And it was that underlying conviction that there's order that Melvin Calvin, whom I mentioned earlier, believed came from the Judeo-Christian tradition. In other words, all scientists are people of faith. Faith in what? Not necessarily in God, though many of them are. But all of us have to believe before we start our science that science can be done, or the universe is rationally intelligible, or more precisely, the universe is mathematically intelligible. Now, in 1961, Eugene Wigner, who won the Nobel Prize for Physics, wrote a wonderful paper called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. And I was very, very interested in this. On what assumption is mathematics unreasonable? Well, certainly it's unreasonable on atheistic assumptions. Very unreasonable indeed. You've no right to accept it, expect it, as many scientists have pointed out. But on the assumption that there is a God who created the world and ordered it, then it's perfectly reasonable that mathematics works. And I often say, look, isn't it amazing that here's a mathematician, she's thinking in here, and she comes up with an equation and applies to the motion of an exoplanet out there, say. How does that possibly work? Well, it works because the universe out there and the mind in here, so to speak, are both the products of an intelligent creator. That makes sense. But as we've already seen, once you remove the intelligent creator, you're left to a faith that has no base in evidence. Now, here's the irony, you see. The irony is not that there's a conflict between God and science. There isn't. But there is a conflict between science and atheism. For that very reason, it undermines the rational underpinnings that we need to do science. Now, I say this is important because, mm. first of all, it's absolutely central, and secondly, everybody can understand it. Mm. You've spoken about the intelligibility of the universe, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics, and the way that is very coherent when it comes to a theistic outlook on the world. 
What about the actual results of science? Because obviously what a lot of people are interested in are some of the things like Big Bang cosmology, the, this idea that there was a beginning, physical beginning to the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe where the parameters and numbers of the physics themselves and the laws seem so exquisitely finely tuned to allow life to develop in the cosmos. To what extent do you think Christians can use those kinds of physical discoveries to build a case for a mind behind the universe? To a very great extent, because our atheist friends see there is a problem. Take the Big Bang first. Of course, Fred Hoyle coined that phrase, Big Bang. It was a label of a mystery. It was his rejection, really, and repugnance to the idea of a beginning. And part of that, his colleague said, was uh, he didn't really like the idea of a creator. Now, what is so interesting about that is that I remember the 1960s when the evidence came in strong and heavy that there was a beginning to space-time. It was resisted in the UK, even by the editor of Nature, who said we shouldn't go down that road because it'll give too much leverage to people who believe in creation. In other words, it raised the obvious question, if there was a beginning to space-time, and everything we know this universe proceeded from that point, it raises the question, what caused it? What lies behind it? Now, oddly enough, it was the 1960s where we had the definitive evidence came in. For centuries, it had been believed with Aristotle that the universe was eternal. But the Hebrew Bible had for centuries, and the Christian New Testament had been claiming that there was a beginning. Mm. And they were proved to be right. And when I mentioned this in a debate with Dawkins, he said, what's the big deal? It, there either was a beginning and there wasn't. So if you guess, you've got a 50% chance of getting it right. I said, Richard, it wasn't decided by statistics or tossing a coin. It was decided against enormous pressure. And a lot of the pressure coming from atheism, that it couldn't be so. So... To be able to say, initially, as, as you say, the, the, the pushback against uh, the idea that there was a beginning to space-time actually did come primarily from, from atheist scientists. And they had to give in because of the sheer weight of evidence. So Dawkins was wrong when he suggested to me that it was the toss of a coin. And I have made the point repeatedly, at least the Bible got it right all those millennia ago. And so we have a beginning. It raises the question of, well, what caused that? The cosmologists, brilliant people like the late Stephen Hawking, come in to try to explain how you can get something from nothing. This is the key philosophical question. It goes back to Leibniz and Heidegger and all kinds of other people. How do you get something from nothing? And his key statement in his penultimate book is because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Now, when I read that, I thought, pardon? Because there is a law like gravity, because there is something, the universe will create itself from nothing. That's a flat logical contradiction. But then, on inquiring a bit further, I noticed well, because there's a law like gravity, 
Is this falling for the common mistake among scientists that laws create things? C.S. Lewis debunked that long ago when pointing out that the laws of arithmetic won't create any money for you, even though some experts in the banking world thought it could. That, and then finally, the universe will create itself. Well, what does that mean? Just analyzing the words. If I say X creates Y, it means if you've got X, you're going to get Y, roughly speaking. If I say X creates X, well, as I said in my book, it means nonsense remains nonsense, even if high-powered scientists <laughs> talk it. Now, that profoundly disturbed me. If this is the way you get rid of God, then it is intellectually unworthy. And think of Lawrence Krauss in his book, A Universe from Nothing, where he says near the beginning, he, he says, uh, surely nothing must be physical, just as something is, even if it is the absence of something. Well, that's just sheer rubbish. <laughs> now, if people to get rid of God have to resort, resort to rubbish, then using inference, the best explanation, the God explanation comes off very much more effectively. It really does worry mm, me, that mm. kind of non-explanation that is being foisted mm, on people today. So there's a huge question. Hawking has not mm, solved the mm, question of mm. why there's something rather than nothing. And what I want to say very carefully is the universe came from nothing physical, but it didn't come from nothing. It came from God, who's not nothing. God may be spirit, but he isn't nothing. Again, the biblical worldview comes in with an explanation that makes sense. Hey, we'll pick up the conversation with John Lennox again next time. And there's a link to Cosmic Chemistry, his new book, in the show notes. You can find out more about all our other podcasts, videos, and learning resources from Unbelievable at our website, premierunbelievable.com. And of course, our live big conversation coming up in July, plus our 2022 conference download. And if you want more from John, you could stop by the training and events section and enroll in our Confident Christianity course. It's got some great material from John from previous unbelievable conferences that you can learn from. The links are all with the show. Uh, for now, thanks for being with me on today's episode of Unapologetic. As I've said, share the episode with others who you think will enjoy it and leave us a rating and a review. It'll help others to discover us. For now, thanks for being with us and see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com. Unapologetic.